Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. We're joined today by Robert Springborg of the Naval Postgraduate School, who will be talking about his new book, Political Economies of the Middle East and North Africa. Then we'll be joined by a group of scholars, May Darwish, Walid Hasbun, Adam Sauli, and Karim Makdisi, uh, to talk about a collection uh, in international studies perspectives of articles about the politics of teaching international relations in the Arab world, reading Walt in Beirut, Went in Doha, and Abdul Fadl in Cairo. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. Hi, I'm Mark Lynch. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, and we're joined today by a group of scholars who put together a fascinating symposium in international studies perspectives. It's entitled The Politics of Teaching International Relations in the Arab World, reading Walt in Beirut, Went in Doha, and Abul Fadl in Cairo. Uh, we're joined today by May Darwish of the University of Birmingham, uh, Walid Hasbun of the University of Alabama, uh, Adam Saudi of the University of St. Andrews, and Karim Makdisi of the American University of Beirut. Other authors in the symposium include Morten Valburn of Aarhus University, Vassal Salouh of the Lebanese American University, Amira Abu Samra of the University of Cairo University, Hamad Ablushi of Kuwait University, and Saeed Sadiqi of Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah University in Morocco. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we're going to start um, by just asking May Darwish uh, to tell us a little bit about the the writing of this symposium, how it came together, and um, and and what ultimately came out of this in terms of surprising insights into the way international relations is taught and experienced in the Middle East. Well, thank you, Mark, for hosting us. Um, so this special forum has been the fruit of several efforts over the last few years. Several workshops were organized uh, initially by Martin Valbjorn and Walid Hasboun at AUB a few years ago. And uh, another workshop that was sponsored by the Arab Political Science Network, which is a network that aims to bring uh, Arab scholars together across the region to talk about teaching and research. And we hosted that, um, Basil Salou hosted that at the Lebanese American University. And in this last workshop, we started really putting the forum together and it started with this question of to what extent we can consider IR in as taught and researched in the Arab world as an American social science. And with that question, we had in mind the whole global IR debate and that literature that talks about how IR is different in different regions. And we wanted to explore how different it is in the Arab world. And we wanted specifically to talk about the teaching and examine that question through the lens of teaching IR in the region. And obviously it was a fascinating uh, process because initially we had some assumptions and we had some ideas about how IR is taught in the Arab world, but obviously during these workshops and as expressed in the forum, we've come up or we've encountered lots of let's say surprising findings, but also interesting findings that we think that other scholars should build and expand on it. And the first finding that we encountered was how we teach IR. And opening any syllabus on IR in the Arab world, it's very um, similar in many ways to any syllabi that an American scholar would use in teaching IR in the US. But definitely when we started talking about how it's taught in the classroom, what dynamics are there around that syllabi, it became very clear that it's, it's a very different process. So we have several pieces that talked about this. For example, Basil's piece is talking about the importance of addressing and examining and studying the mainstream approaches. But also we have the piece by Walid, and I think Walid can elaborate on that later, about the post-colonial approaches and the knowledge production and how that was necessary to resonate with the students in Beirut when teaching IR, because simply reading those texts did not resonate with them. Reading the mainstream approaches required a further critical engagement, but also how other scholars relied on homegrown theorizing like the Islamic paradigm in IR at Cairo University and the piece by Amira showed that sometimes scholars 
to resonate with the students and to sometimes criticize the mainstream approaches, they had to come up with ideas and thoughts that more, um, they're more local uh, and probably easier to digest by the students. The second finding was more related to the context and sometimes the context in terms of political context, institutional context, but also the language where IRs thought have a great effect on the teaching process itself. So we found, for example, IR modules taught in private universities versus public universities matter a great deal, but also teaching IR in North Africa in the Maghreb, it's a totally different process because IR is taught in law departments and it's very much influenced by the French colonialism. So they rely more on French textbooks rather than American textbooks, but also the language of the teaching was really crucial. So teaching in Arabic, one would think it's a simple translation, but it's not really a simple translation. There are also dynamics that come with teaching the same discipline in a different language. And the pieces by Adham, but also the piece by Hamad show this very well. And the piece by Saeed also talking about the French aspect is also very, very revealing in that aspect. And finally, we also found that the individual and the political factors matter. Who is teaching? Where they are trained? What kind of approaches they believe in or they adopt in their own research matter in how they teach the module. So all in all, we sort of identified how IR is different in the Arab world through the teaching itself. It's not just the research, but it's actually the act of teaching, the content, the context as well, all matters um, in the process. And finally, we were also faced by some challenges that we didn't expect to face when we were working on the forum. So for example, we hope to include more scholars from North Africa, from Algeria, for example, or Jordan, but there were access issues. It's sometimes it was not very easy to even understand how IRS taught in different universities because their website was not very, um, clear or not updated. So we had also lots of challenges in getting a more comprehensive view of the region altogether and how IR is taught in different places. Yeah, one of the things that you just mentioned really struck me in reading the symposium and especially the framing essay for the symposium, which was this idea that uh, we focus so much on like the research and, and the publishing aspect of it, and we don't pay enough attention to the experience in the classroom and what what we're actually saying to or what you know uh, instructors in Arab universities are saying to the students and what the students are are actually receiving and saying back to them and that it's a fascinating dynamic that comes through many of the essays. Let's talk a little bit about the choices that uh, that instructors make then in in the classroom and the experiences that students are bringing to the classroom and how that shapes what you found in in, in your um, in your research and writing. Um, Adam, do you would you like to uh, would you like to start by talking about your experiences? Sure, thanks, Mark, and th thanks, May, too. So I guess uh, the, the immediate challenge is to introduce students to the field of international relations uh, with its history, with its different epistemologies, with its different theories, and of course, um, with the critical edge, because at the end of the day, one accepts that this discipline is a product of the Anglo-American world, and there is a challenge to teach it outside of the, of the Western world. So some history matters in this case. So that was challenging. But in many ways, as I argue in my piece, there were interesting opportunities as far as I'm concerned and as far as the students were concerned, in the sense that these different theoretical frameworks tend to offer ways to see the world, including the world where these students actually come from, because students are not um, uh, stripped of their agency. They come to the class with their own curiosities, with their own needs, with their own, whether social or political needs. And they're seeking answers. Uh, doesn't have to be like definite answers, but certainly some sort of um, 
frameworks through which to understand the political world. So the second challenge was really to link international relations as a field to the interests of these Arab, um, quite amazing students, especially the ones I came across in Doha. They're really bright students, um, usually coming from uh, poorer backgrounds in the Arab world. They're offered scholarships, they're quite bright. They come to the class and with lots of energy and passion. So uh, resonating, um, making sure that the, the material resonates with their interests was quite important. Not only talking about theories and the history of the discipline, but also asking questions emerging from the Arab world, which I think uh, this is an aspect I have shared with my colleagues in the forum. Uh, Karim Maktoussi, how, how does this um, uh, play out at AUB then? Well, actually, uh, I mean, actually I share quite a bit of what uh, Adam is saying here. Um, and I think a lot of the essays, I think in this collection make this, uh, make quite a quite a quite uh, uh, an interesting kind of comparison in different countries in the Arab world. I think uh, just to echo what Adam is saying, I think first of all, what's interesting to note is that I think more than maybe a typical IR course in the US, history does matter a lot. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting that we have to grapple in the classroom um, certainly in a place like Beirut uh, these days and, and over the past decade or so, um, and we're kind of, we have Palestinian students and Syrian students and, and you know, various students from, from the, the Levant and the Mesh especially, uh, the idea that we, we all of us collectively are living this kind of insecurity that we've been writing about. We're living the, this uh, insecurity. Uh, so, um, you know, the region has transformed, has shifted hugely just before our eyes. This is not just something that one reads about and says, okay, the 2003 Iraq war and sort of sitting in the US and it, you know, it, it's obviously some local importance, but it, it doesn't, it's not, you don't feel it. It's not touch where you are being bombed, you're being shelled, you're having to deal with movements, you're having to deal with ISIS on the ground here rather than uh, in some other kind of context. So what, what I found quite challenging in this sense is to try to connect the, the kind of the mainstream texts of IR, which are important. And of course they need to know the discipline uh, and the different theories as Adam was saying, but at the same time to try to figure out what is their role? Where, where are they? How do they fit into this? Um, and I, it's, it's interesting that even at AUB, which is of course one of the, the foremost private institutions, it's not even the public ones. So we have access there. Are, you know, there is electronic access to the journals, to the books, to the, to the discussions more or less. Uh, but there's a sense of we don't really uh, we're we're very much uh, passive subjects uh, in this in this larger kind of international relations game, and so trying to figure out what their agency is or what the agency in the global south, the larger global south, the Middle East, uh, Lebanon here, what is our sense of agency within this discussion of international relations? Because once you start teaching, uh, I think in my experience has been if I start teaching uh, in the kind of abstract. Uh, they lose interest or it's difficult to kind of, especially on the undergraduate level, but even at some point at the graduate level, once you try to show that there is a sense of struggle, that the voice here, that there is, uh, you know, so the, the, the ISIS is also a response. It's not just a passive thing, you know, Islamic resistances, uh, Hezbollah, all of these different kinds of topics all are resisting certain movements within international relations at the global, at the regional level. And so how they feel about it, how they react, in some cases, how they're participating in this, uh, in the various protest movements in Lebanon and in the different areas in, in the Middle East recently, all of these things are, are, are there to challenge and test the theories and the different ideas, both in the positive sense, but also in the critical sense. And again, I wanna echo what, what Adam said, which is that again, I, I found it striking that, I mean, it's my experience, but I, in reading all my colleagues as well, there seems to be quite a concentration focused on the idea that it's always a kind of a critical lens. There's uh, tendencies to think about the sociological and the critical lenses um, uh, tra traditions, uh, because we found this to be quite valuable to our lived experience. Uh, Walid Hasbun? Uh, yeah, I mean, my I came to this question, um, you know, um, in, you know, going between let's say two different worlds. The, in 2007, I, uh, I took a leave of absence from Johns Hopkins, wh that where I was teaching students within the you know greater Washington Beltway during the Bush administration, during the the, the war in Iraq, and, and the idea of you know IR knowledge was kind of like a tool to master to become part of these managers of the region. They wanted to um, they wanted to you know solve the problem of fixing the Middle East, 
Um, and so, you know, my teaching was kind of problematizing that, but they, 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 they understood that the language of IR was kind of a, um, you know, in a sense, an American language that served American purposes. You know, when I, when I, um, I, I took this leave and got, went to taught at the American University of Beirut, you know, when I was um, uh, with Kareem, um, and I taught a master's class in IR theory. Um, I was, you know, so in this context of, of, you know, just having suffered through this 2006 war, um, the idea of like, what, what, what does IR mean to them? And, you know, many students are taking a class just because it's required. And, and there was a kind of sense that, well, you know, we have to learn this because it's the American knowledge. And, and AUB has had a history of, you know, the faculty, um, you know, to what degree do you just teach what is the American curriculum? Um, and, um, and sometimes people would teach the American curriculum. I, I remember colleagues saying this, and then they would say, well, this is, you know, we're teaching you this, but this is not really how it works. <laughs> if it's, uh, you know, things like, especially public administration uh, in, in some of those fields. Um, so in, in IR, there was, a, um, there was a question of, you know, some sort of pushback, like we can learn this as this is the considered the important stuff with the, you know, uh, you know, the Americans is this, this is kind of just the, um, uh, the language of American power is, um, is IR. And, and I wanted to take seriously the idea that, well, IR can be kind of a tool, one, to understand the context that they're living in, the insecurity that you face. Why was there this war? You know, why is Lebanon, um, uh, you know, had suffered this kind of, you know, um, uh, um, you know, um, uh, you know, the fate, let's say. Um, so, and then the other thing is you have to think about the students in, in, at the master's level at AUB, they, they are quite diverse. Many of them are Lebanese, but there's also many Americans who come to do study abroad. And then you get Europeans. So you, you get this classroom of all these different kind of perspectives. And I think as, as, as Kareem was saying also, you know, if you're looking at the relationship to American power, you're looking at it from different sides. You're getting, uh, you know, Americans and Europeans as well as uh, um, uh, Arab students. And so I, I think there was the kind of challenge of how to respond to, to, to understanding where IR comes from um, and, and why it's you know, an important language to, to, to know, but it, it kind of set me off on this interest to understand you know, what would be the knowledge that would be created from the region. And we can get into some issues about why there isn't, there isn't sort of like a, a strong literature of IR that's written from the region with different perspectives. Um, so part of, I think, the challenge is to, is to introduce a kind of agency to learning knowledge um, at, the, at the graduate level. Some of these students went on to go do PhDs in, in other places, but even the undergraduates, which is different than in, I found in the American classroom, the, the people who study political science in, at a place like AUB are not the people who are going to go work in, in government or do it as part of becoming a lawyer many of those students are actually really curious about these questions. You know, what does political science and IR uh, have to offer to answer these questions? So you kind of felt this, um, uh, uh, this effort to sort of give them tools to help understand the context um, of their you know, geopolitical situation. Great, so as I read through the symposium, there were a couple of themes that really kind of jumped out at me. Um, in terms of um, you know, kind of the classroom experiences themselves and how you were teaching. Uh, 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 Walid has this uh, really interesting discussion of what he calls teaching against the grain, like reading the same articles, but reading them quite differently. And uh, several of the, of the, of the uh, contributors, they note the proclivity towards conspiracy theory explanations of um, international relations and the need to kind of use theory to push back against that. Um, and then there's also, I think Karim was the one who mentioned this notion of students kind of doubting their own agency and uh, thinking that international relations kind of you know, in a sense, excluded them and, and accepting that and, and not believing that uh, that regional countries have the kind of agency that many of our theories suggest that they do. I was wondering if you could, if uh, you could each like say just a little bit about those classroom experiences and how students were receiving the kinds of instruction of theory that you were giving. Uh, maybe we could go back to Adam. Sure. Um, on that point, let me make a very generic point. I think when it comes to IR theory, I didn't see really a difference between Arab students or the students we have here in the UK, mostly British, but also very international cohorts. Uh, they both seem to hate theory, largely speaking. <laughs> and hence, um, as a lecturer, one has to put some effort to make sense of it. So that's what I got from my students in the Arab world. 
Um, a more challenging aspect, and again, I want to be a bit generic, not very unique to the Arab world. I think the classroom and social science disciplines in general and IR in specific, they're good forums, they're good frameworks to shake the stereotypes students come with to the class, whether in the US, UK, Doha, Lebanon, wherever. So in that sense, I think uh, discussions of theories played an important role in shaking stereotypes, two of which are quite dominant in Arab discourse. One is the idea that political science is a science and hence they expected the certainty about knowledge and clear answers when then they realized that the discussions between the theories tends to relativize the, the knowledge and hence it's not as certain. So that, that was a bit frustrating. The other aspect is um, also dominant in Arab political discourse is the idea that in politics, interests matter. And by interests, they usually mean material interests. And a politician, a good politician has to be a realist. But then when you start thinking about these different frameworks, constructivism, historical sociology, you name it, the role of norms, ethics, then they begin to realize it's a bit more complex than that. After all, despite all their uh, understandings of the international system, they realized something when I was teaching the module, uh, the, the course in Doha, that not all the world acknowledged or recognized Jerusalem as the capital of uh, Israel. So I asked this you know, question in class, why was it America alone? Why didn't the UK follow suit? And that brought us to international law, norms, et cetera, et cetera. So in brief, I think theories really matter. And class dynamics were quite interesting if you link these theoretical questions and intellectual questions to your audience, in this case, Arab students' needs and social interests and curiosities. I'll That's stop great. here. <laughs> Karim? Yes, uh, thanks. Well, I think, uh, I mean, again, I agree with much of what Adam was saying, but I, I would add maybe a couple of points. I think the first is, is in trying to convince the students uh, of the relevance or the importance of theory, uh, one of the things I found, for instance, is that, um, because, I mean, let's say theories like, like liberalism uh, are the least convincing. So trying to talk about institutions and international law and uh, even norms and these kinds of issues I found have been the most challenging because there's just an inherent mistrust or distrust in these kinds of institutions. Uh, they look at, at the Palestine Israel issue, they look at different kinds of issues that say, well, what's the point? Is this pure power politics? And it's very difficult to dislodge them from, if they're going to get into a theoretical discussion, they're lean much more towards realism and this kind of mainstream debates. It's very, very difficult to try to get them to see another side, which is the importance for the significance of thinking in institutional terms, et cetera. I think this, this is one important point that I, I've, I've struggled with. Although I teach courses at, uh, on the politics of the United Nations, international organizations, international environmental policy. So that's obviously, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of literature on, on that. So that's one aspect. I think a second aspect, again, uh, is to introduce a lot more, uh, and I've, I've done this over the years. It's, I, I do it more uh, you know, these days as opposed to a decade ago which is definitely to introduce much more critical uh, and critical constructivist, uh, you know, even Gramscian, th this, these kinds of theories, which when explained, I think make, somehow make it more relevant to them. There is the sense of, you know, you're, you're, you are here and you're pushing against uh, some kind of power which is coming to you. I mean, you know, in this kind of lived experience kind of a way. So something is coming, the, the US empire is coming at you and so you can understand that in the power politics issue, and you can understand yourself as the venue of, uh, you know, Russian-American games in Syria. But then, how does how does the struggle inside Syria, or the struggle in Lebanon, or the struggle in the region, how does it push back in its different forms? I think this is something which uh, which you know, there's you can find some interesting theoretical uh, discussions about, it. and then that I think they begin to appreciate uh, uh, more as we get into this more kind of complex or or less. Uh, less obvious kinds of uh, theoretical explanation. So I think th these are really important. The third thing I might add is just uh, uh, is that I found it
my course, if I were to connect them to more policy oriented thing or more kind of practice oriented issues that they also can connect with, then this becomes this becomes something which which they can digest and and, and understand a lot more uh, clearly. Great, uh, Walid. Um, yeah, I, I might just add, you know, like like Kareem was saying, like teaching the um, critical approaches and 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 postcolonial theory and, and part of the idea of understanding where knowledge comes from and, and how it was constructed for certain purposes, why we don't necessarily have um, a kind of knowledge that's being constructed for for whole different purposes, but you can highlight points of resistance, um, you know. But but one thing about you know the idea of reading against the grain is to say some of these core texts like Walt and you know I use the other example I refer to there is, is Huntington um, to to read these texts, but to to engage this kind of critical thinking, teach students that they should know this, and this is something that the Basil Salus you know, piece uh, highlights the importance of basically knowing the core IR theory so you can engage in it on this kind of sophisticated level with a, a strong uh, methodology, but also to, to open up the doors to the, to the critique, to, to reading against the grain, to find, you know, how people might read Walt. And, and the example I use is this idea of, you know, writing in the late 80s, the idea of balancing, you know, is, is more common than, than bandwagoning and that being common, the takeaway that you, you get from your IR theory. But, you know, if you read closely, he talks about the, the Camp David Accords and the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty as bandwagoning. And, and then, you know, so I highlight the fact that the most, you know, consequential alliance formation, um, you, know, it, it, you know, that's discussed, that's relevant to the Middle East is actually bandwagoning. So I try to open up the doors to like reading the core text, but reading them, uh, you know, to serve kind of, let's say a different purpose with a different context. Um, so one of the things which is um, interesting, like reading the entire symposium is how the classroom dynamics vary across uh, the region, that having this discussion in Beirut is different from having it in Doha, which, which is very different from having it in, um, in uh, the Maghreb. And, um, and when I was reading that, I, I was also thinking about having, you know, my brilliant Arab students coming to the Elliott School and, um, and they're bringing their personal experiences with them, um, you know, in the same way that they do uh, when they're at home, but now they're coming into my classroom and informing and enriching the discussions that they're having with the American-based students and the like. And I was curious if, if you might be able to reflect on the, the, the importance of, of the teaching being in the Arab world versus Arab students engaging with these theories and, and these ideas in different ways. And maybe reflecting on that, especially since most of you have taught in both Western and Arab universities environments, um, you know, how, 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 do you, how have you been able to think about that? Um, May, did you wanna speak on that one? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, I think definitely having to teach the same material in a different context matters. And that's also what the forum has found out throughout that sometimes the institutional context, not even just the country, but what kind of university matters in terms of resources, but also in terms of how the policies and how the laws that come to shape what we can teach and what we cannot teach. So many, many issues around political sensitivities that many of the topics that are taught in the Arab world might not be as well as elaborated the way we taught, we teach it in the UK or in the US. So this might be one, one dynamic. The other dynamic is about the student themselves. So the student, when they are in a different context. So for example, I've got like one or two Arab students per year in a class of 50 students. Definitely they are a minority, but also they are not the only minority. And the module is taught to be as inclusive and as diverse as possible, but in the end it is for a Western audience. And nowadays, for example, in the UK, we talk a lot about how to decolonize knowledge, how to take the global South perspective. And it's not really the same discussion that in the Arab world, which the forum shows, it's rather about how to make the content of these theories, which mm -hmm. are Western in their origin, resonate with the livelihood of the people in the region. So I think it is, kind of a different struggle. And the student, when they travel across these two spheres, definitely they have a totally different experience of 
learning IR, of teaching IR, but also the way they engage with other students in the classroom makes the experience different. Uh, Karim? Yeah, I actually wanted to, to, to raise a point that, you know, based on the question you asked, about your own students, and it's it's something which has always, frankly, it's it's been it's been a, a big challenge for me personally, and I'm sure others, which is that we basically, especially our very best undergraduate students, we basically train them to end up going to the U.S. or the U.K. or some other kinds of countries. So the good ones, uh, we're basically exporting them, and this becomes very very difficult when you spend, uh, as many of us do, we spend quite a lot of time with you know the, the, the very good students. Um, and we give our advice and we share our contacts and our networks and we do all this kind of thing. And they might might maybe stay at the master's level if they can't go abroad. But then beyond that, they go to the US and we end up being like the resource people. You know, we end up being like the local contact in Lebanon or in some other place like that. But meanwhile, I've had several students, you know, they've worked with me, for instance, on the United Nations. Um, and they've, you know, I've given a lot of my time and networks. And then they go to someone else and they're someone else's PhD student. And so they, they kind of develop that, they become that person's student. And then that knowledge is produced outside and often they'll stay outside because that's where the jobs are gonna be. And so, you know, the question then becomes, we're teaching what? We're either teaching a curriculum uh, for the sake of it, because, you know, there's a major and you have to teach course A and course B and, you know, IR, et cetera. And, you know, these are interesting courses and they kind of, they move on. Or you're teaching it to try to uh, kind of create a cohort of students that can that can have some kind of coherence in the debates, uh, if not just parochially, but sort of regionally, internationally, at different fora. We just don't produce. We don't have the jobs. We, there are no. Uh, you can't. You, you know. You can't expect to do get an IR degree and find a job at a think tank or find a job at the government. It just doesn't work like that. So we end up exporting our best students, and that becomes a, a big source of uh, of uh, power imbalance within the academia itself. Because I don't have PhD students, I don't have. I, I'm unable to build a kind of a school, you know, a, a set of people that can, you know, have some kind of like-mindedness. They're going to go to you. They're going to go to others. That's really interesting. Um, Adam, uh, what about the Doha Institute versus um, Saint Andrews? Uh, certainly, the context matters, as I argue in my piece. Um, uh, you have the institution, pretty young institution trying to build itself. Uh, that's, the, you know, compare that to established uh, institutions in the UK and you see quite a difference. So there's an ongoing process of learning which sometimes affects students. You have the country uh, that is hosting the institution. This comes with its own constraints. Although to be, to be fair, I didn't feel at, uh, at any point I was constrained in the way I was expressing my you know, intellectual or uh, academic um, uh, interests in class. Then you have the students themselves. Uh, they're Arabs coming from different backgrounds. Um, quite interesting in that sense. Uh, th there's no clear majority in this case, unlike the, the maybe Lebanon or, or, or the UK. Um, so it was quite even even the, the, the local Qataris weren't in the majority. So that was interesting, really, a very interesting forum, which helped in, in uh, class dynamics. They were ready to accommodate uh, general advice, whether it's on writing or researching or even just discussing in class. So that was useful. A major challenge was that I was teaching in Arabic and, of course, translating concepts into Arabic was um, challenging on many levels, but it was also an interesting opportunity because I got them to start thinking about translations. And in the process we were, um, if you want, investigating the importance of these concepts and how they apply to, to, to the Arab world. I'm a bit more optimistic than Karim on the idea of educating students. Um, I still think it's it's quite important. Sadly, we tend to lose many in Lebanon, especially with what's happening now, let alone in Egypt and many parts of the Arab world. I don't think they all end up necessarily end up in academia. So you could still uh, influence them. They'll be in diplomacy, in the diplomatic sector, in business, maybe in uh, journalism. We do sadly lose the best. I mean. 
the best students I had in Doha, I'm still in contact with them. And as Karim and Walid have mentioned, they're ready now to do their PhD uh, abroad. Th this is, sadly, this is the truth. I mean, Western universities are better on many levels. So people have the right to aspire to go to the best universities. But that's a challenge on Arab societies and, and governments to establish institutions in the Arab world to keep these students. An institution like the UB, which is an amazing institution, should at one point maybe establish a PhD program. And I think it would be very attractive, not only for the Lebanese and Arabs, but possibly anyone in the world uh, for many, many reasons. And I hope this will be the case. Doha Institute is in the process of establishing a PhD program. So we basically need more of these to try to keep them in the region. And we hope those who come to the West then return also. So. Um, why don't we give the last word uh, to Walid Hasbun? Um, yeah, I mean, I was part of some efforts to talk about the, the idea of a PhD program at AUB. And so I, I think that the idea is you do have this kind of, um, you know, uh, hierarchy within the knowledge production where, where you know, students come from the region and to, 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 to go into Europe or, or the US institutions, they kind of have to be socialized into a new kind of career path. You know, how, where, if I wanna get an academic job, what kind of work am I gonna do and so forth? So I, I kind of, you know, one thing I think one can take from this, this form is the idea of, of having a broader imagination of what IR can be. And it, it's not saying that, that there is not this other IR that's being constructed elsewhere, but it's the idea that there could be different kind of influences and concerns that IR, the global community of IR scholars should embrace and not just, you know, think within our, our kind of more narrow um, uh, concerns and institutions and hierarchies within academia, but also think about it as sort of like a global project with a global mission, because IR is really supposed to be the study of global politics. Well, I'd like to really thank uh, Kareem Akdesi, Walid Hasbun, uh, Adam Saudi, and Maid Darwish for joining us to talk about their symposium on uh, teaching international relations in the Arab world. Uh, thank you all so much. Hi, this is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and welcome to our book segment. Today, we're joined by Robert Springborg, a retired professor at Naval Postgraduate School and author of the new book, Political Economies of the Middle East and North Africa, uh, recently published by Polity Press. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, Mark. Thank thanks for having me. So tell, tell us about the book. Uh, what motivated you to write this book and what makes it different from uh, other books about the political economy of the Middle East? I guess the main motivating factor was wanting to um, understand and explain why Middle East and North Africa is doing so poorly. Uh, and by that, I mean doing poorly economically, politically, development of its human resources, provision of security, just right across the board. And, and you know, those measures of performance, which used to be more sort of impressionistic in the last decade or so, the development of uh, global data and global scales measuring all sorts of subdimensions of doing well or doing poorly uh, give you, you know, the empirical evidence. And when you look at it uh, for the Middle East and North Africa, it's really quite shocking, uh, whether it's political, economic, social, you name it. Uh, it's really underperforming virtually all other regions in almost all of these areas. So it, the real question in my mind was, why is it... Uh, doing so badly. And I'm an old guy. And I first uh, went to the Middle East in the mid 1960s. And it was another world. It wasn't performing poorly. It was really sort of uh, at the forefront of much of the sort of third world, uh, you know, hopes for development, challenging old colonial powers and myths and stereotypes and, and uh, economically, uh, my favorite example is Aleppo was like Havana. Uh, it was full of these great old American cars. And, uh, you know, it was Syria was one of the most rapidly developing countries in the world in the 1950s. So that was the real central question of it. Uh, and as far as the competition, if that's the right term for other books uh, on the political economy of the Middle East and North Africa, when I started writing uh, this book, the main one was um, 
uh, Alan Richards and John Waterbury is then taken over by Melanie Kamant and Ishak Diwan, Political Economy of the Middle East. Uh, and I saw this book as a complement to that rather than competition and a complement in the sense that their book uh, was much more economic in focus uh, than mine. Mine is uh, going back to, if you will, Adam Smith and the foundation of political economy. Uh, it was to look at the politics uh, mm -hmm. that determined economic outcomes, which is as Adam Smith had really sort of defined uh, the discipline and it remained political economy for a century. Uh, and it was really only in the 20th century that political economy became economics as we know it today, and it became much more technically focused and much less politically focused than it had been. So because their book was really more within the realm as we understand it of economics, I wanted this one to be more sort of the political explanations for the economic outcomes that they document so thoroughly and so well in that book. So I saw it as a companion volume to that one. Now, if anyone could imagine assigning two textbooks, both theirs, which is almost 500 pages, mine is 250 or so. Uh, it would be a brave effort indeed, but who knows, maybe somebody's done that. Well, let's hope. Um, so, so one of the things which I found to be quite distinctive about the book was the emphasis that you place on uh, international relations and the international role in shaping uh, the states and the economies of the Middle East. Tell us a little bit about why you placed uh, so much emphasis on the international dimension. Well, uh, partly, I guess, you know, again, another inspiration for the book was uh, comparative. Uh, I had taken an interest in political economy, as I just said, and it was really the uh, developmental state of East Asia that caught my eye, if you will. I looked at various explanations of economic outcomes, and none of them were as satisfactory as the political one of state capacities. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was my old boss at Berkeley, uh, Chalmers Johnson, who wrote the first really fine book on Japan and the, the uh, Miti and the Industrial Revolution of Japan uh, that looked into the relationships between states and economic outcomes. Uh, and then as I began to look at some of the rest of that literature and the most up-to-date, um, it took on a, uh, it, it, the argument has been pushed back. So we're not just dealing with post-war Japan or contemporary China. Scholars of East Asia have been pushing back uh, the relationship between state capacities and economic outcomes uh, now for more than 2000 years. Uh, and so there is a lot of literature, which in my mind conclusively demonstrated uh, the impact of states, uh, even let's say about 300 BC, the famous first dynasty of China, uh, and what it uh, was able to accomplish and in comparative terms between different parts of that Chinese state, uh, different geographical parts, and the performance of those local economies. Uh, and so the, it was enormously convincing to me, uh, and the question immediately arose, well, why haven't we done that in the Middle East and North Africa? Uh, why haven't we tried to place our understanding of uh, the political economies there in a globalist perspective, especially as regards comparing mm -hmm. uh, state performance? And so then it took me to looking at what are the determinants of, of state capacities and state performance. And a hugely important dimension to that uh, is international. What have been the forces shaping these state capacities? And in the Middle East and North Africa, probably more than any other region, they have been international. First, because of imperialism and colonialism. And secondly, because of oil. Uh, that it is uh, the centrality of hydrocarbons to the Middle East and North African economies and the relationships that that has established with the rest of the world that are so uh, incredibly important for that part of the world. So this, Mark, is a bit of a roundabout way of bringing you to the international dimension. But that's sort of how I got there, wandering through, if you will, uh, 2,000 years of Chinese history, but ending up realizing that uh, you, know, you can only understand Middle East state capacities with reference not only to the internal, which it was entirely in China, but also to the external. And that's a key difference between doing political economy, political economy of the Middle East and North Africa and doing it at East Asia. 
the high degree of international attention to the Middle East then is kind of factors into why state capacity um, is underdeveloped isn't exactly the right word, but kind of misshaped in the Middle Eastern states. Well, yeah, it, it is misshaped, but it's, it's getting easier to shape it right, I think. Um, and, and that is, it's not just a conceptual uh, exercise, it's also an empirical one. And uh, if the conceptual one is being developed by a virtual comparison to other parts of the world, which it can easily be now because this notion is being widely used, but it's because of the huge proliferation uh, of comparative data sources that we now have. Uh, and it, of course, started really with the World Bank's uh, World Governance Indicators back in 1996. But now, whether it's the bank or the IMF or other international agencies or think tanks or individuals, uh, the uh, dimensions that are available to you with cross-national comparative data frequently with the longitudinal dimension is huge. Uh, I couldn't have written this book a decade ago because that information was not available. It now is, and it amazed, it amazed me when I began to search around for it, how little these various uh, dimensions have been used, whether produced by Transparency International or by the Bertelsmann Foundation or you name it. Uh, and in fact, it gives you a, a really good comparative base to evaluate state capacity. Uh, and just about all considerations of state capacities, look at how they manage two things, how they manage human resources and how they manage economies. Uh, and as I'm just saying here, the, the number of uh, indicators and the relative data on those indicators for these two uh, dimensions of state capacity are simply huge. So I've tried to uh, include as many as I could in the book without boring the reader to death. Uh, and I may have bored many readers, uh, hopefully not to death, uh, but it's just a shame not to use that information that is available. So it played a huge a role then in shaping how I could write those chapters because I wanted them to be data rich and um, they were written down to a pretty microscopic level, which is not maybe in keeping with the idea of a textbook so much, but I, I thought it important to use it to demonstrate the importance of the availability of that data. Well, you draw on, uh, on Michael Mann to actually break down the, the question of state power, state capacity along a number of different lines. And I thought that was actually a really interesting uh, way of thinking through this question of state capacity. You spent a lot of time talking about uh, his concept of infrastructural power. So what do you mean by state capacity then? Once you've, once you've begun measuring it, tell us how you're using that to, um, uh, to kind of explain the things you want to explain. Well, that particular aspect of infrastructural power um, is, is a nice way <clears throat> of um, linking state capacity uh, to the political system in which it's, uh, it's embedded. Uh, and he, being a historical sociologist, was interested in the interaction between societies and states. Uh, the East Asian developmental state literature uh, focuses far more on the state than on its relations with society. It sort of put the state in a command position, as indeed the state presumably has been more in East Asia uh, than elsewhere. But Michael Mann's contribution was to show that the strength of a state depends heavily on its capacity to interact effectively with its citizenry. Uh, and you can measure that then in a host of different ways, maybe the best being extraction of resources uh, through direct taxation, which is a classic sort of relationship model. And we know in the Middle East and North Africa that indeed it's the region of the world with the lowest proportion of taxation to GDP in the world and even lower proportion of direct taxes to GDP uh, than taxes as a whole because they rely heavily on, on indirect taxes. So uh, the connection between society and the state is, is hugely important. Uh, and I had had the privilege of uh, working with a group of scholars from Norway uh, some years ago on the production of a, a book on resource economies that was trying to relate the Norwegian experience uh, to other hydrocarbon-based economies globally. And the concept that 
sort of emerged from that exercise was a, a public brain power. Hmm. And public brain power, uh, as defined by the editors of, of that collection of works, uh, was the ability of the citizenry to contribute to uh, the, the, under, the making of public policy, the implementation of public policy. And so for them, Norway was a great example of it. And, and then just by chance, when working in different developmental activities in the Middle East over the last two or three years, I've, I've dealt with Norwegian diplomatic services. Uh, and indeed, there is a sort of a mission uh, in these services to convey what public brain power in the Norwegian uh, manifestation of it means for, let's say, developing hydrocarbon uh, resources off the coast of uh, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, both of these things, Michael Mann and this idea of public brain power, emphasize the relativities, the relationships between states and citizens. Uh, and so that is sort of a, a central theme of the book. How do states relate to their citizens? And unfortunately, the answer is in the Middle East and North Africa, not well. Uh, that uh, another concept that uh, I've tried to use in the book uh, is that of limited access orders, this neo-institutional economic idea that uh, elites um, can either create an open access order in which there will presumably be circulation of elites that will interact with citizens and so on, or a limited access order that is prejudicial against the entry of, of the incumbent elites uh, by non-elites. So. Uh, I, in, in some here, I think the, the key to understanding uh, state capacities lies not just in history and the path dependence of them, but always in the nature of their relationship with their citizens. Uh, and so the book emphasizes that point. Now, you brought up the hydrocarbons. And of course, any, uh, any analysis of political economy of the Middle East is uh, in inevitably going to look at oil and this question of the Rantier state and all these things which have dominated a lot of the political economy literature. So tell us about your take on all of this and the effects of oil on, um, on these political economies. Well, you know, as I uh, mentioned, Mark, the, uh, this was sort of seen in my mind as uh, the political side of uh, political economy with maybe uh, uh, the other book I just mentioned uh, uh, representing the more economic approach. So with regard to hydrocarbons, I was, I was interested in their impact on state capacities as opposed to their more straight economic impacts. And uh, the resource curse is maybe one of the better developed hypotheses, both uh, theoretically and empirically, uh, about the Middle East and North Africa, although, of course, it applies more generally than that. And so I tried then to sort of suffuse the notion of the resource curse into my treatment of state capacities. Uh, it doesn't apply across the board. There, there are obviously elements of states in the contemporary Middle East and North Africa that are determined by other factors rather than dependence upon hydrocarbons either directly or indirectly. One of those factors, for example, uh, is uh, the relative homogeneity or otherwise of the societies over which they govern. Uh, and indeed, now we have lots of measures of societal heterogeneity as opposed to homogeneity. So I use that too. But with regard to hydrocarbons, uh, the impacts uh, are uh, uh, very substantial. And from 2014, as most of us are aware, the downturn in hydrocarbon prices uh, and in, indeed the quantity of consumption, in, in, certainly since the pandemic, uh, is forcing the crisis which I deal with uh, in the last chapter of the book. Uh, and that is to say, okay, what are these states that have, uh, not in every case, but in most cases, adopted so-called visions of the future, which means a knowledge economy will emerge from the old rentier economy. Uh, and so the crisis of our times is a hydrocarbon crisis. Uh, and it impacts the Middle East and North Africa more than any other part of the world and their ability to uh, uh, implement these vision plans uh, is seriously in question. And so the book ends with an attempt to uh, answer that question is, can they do this? Uh, and the answer uh, is essentially no, uh, that these are not states that are easily capable 
of implementing a fundamental top-down reform process. Uh, and so as the hydrocarbon wealth disappears, what's going to be left uh, is a very serious question indeed. Now, you have kind of an interesting take on uh, the question of globalization and the Middle East. Um, with there, In my reading of the book anyway, it seems that you perceive in some ways more globalization of the Middle East than others do, but also less. Um, and so what, how, how do you tell us about how you're interpreting uh, the Middle East in the context of globalization? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> it is paradoxical. I hadn't thought about that before, but you're right. Uh, so on the one hand, globalization was good for the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, it drove the price uh, of oil and gas up. It became responsible for the boom enjoyed by the region, uh, certainly from 1973-74 up until 2014, and indeed was the primary source of wealth of the region even before that. So uh, in the absence of globaliz globalization and high energy prices resulting significantly from globalization, Middle East and North Africa would not have been as developed uh, as it is today. So. Uh, you can say, aha, uh, the region has benefited indirectly through hydrocarbon exports uh, from globalization. But on the other hand, uh, the, the globalization phenomenon has left the Middle East and North Africa behind. Uh, that globalization, uh, uh, the so-called uh, value chains uh, of uh, global productivity, integration of global productivity uh, and which are probably the best measure of any indigenous economy. How much is that economy integrated into global production chains, typically within multinational corporations? And the Middle East and North Africa is, stands out as being that region of the world sort of least integrated into these global production chains. Uh, it has been left behind uh, by the increased globalization uh, of productive processes, <clears throat> and indeed uh, of, of other uh, aspects of globalization, uh, such as trade. Uh, so the trade basket of the Middle East and North Africa has actually diminished over time rather than expanded as it has in most regions of the world. So what has happened here, and just to sum up about the, the paradox of it, is that it was the driver of the wealth of the Middle East, but simultaneously globalization has not have been responded to by Middle East North Africa in a way that is enhanced is the diversity of its economies and ultimately the productivity of them and ultimately their ability to compete and then to transform themselves uh, in the wake of the uh, the end of the oil era. And you would extend that even to some of like the uh, like UAE and Qatar and uh, and states like that, um, which have become quite financially uh, integrated into globalization. Um, and, and, and global shipping and trade, and yet you don't see that, though, as being a model for the rest of the region. It would be hard to. I mean, I think what uh, President Sisi of Egypt is trying to do is create a, as Yazid Saig said in his recent piece uh, at the LSE, uh, is to create a rentier state without rents. Uh, those are, you know, you've identified the small uh, oil exporters, uh, which Abu Dhabi is uh, the absolutely key one and which in a way is the model for Sisi's Egypt, uh, is the classic rentier state. So almost regardless of how uh, the emir there uh, spends his monies, uh, there's no problem because of the, uh, uh, the proportion between rental returns and population is extremely favorable as it is in Kuwait. Uh, in Egypt, on the other hand, uh, it's not that. The rents are very limited and they consist basically of two forms. Uh, one are the limited hydrocarbon resources of the country, chiefly gas. And the second uh, is land. Uh, and the use not only of land for building and uh, agriculture, but also of the resources the land has. And so, uh, as Yazid so clearly explains in that piece, what the military has done, and we can think of, I think, the military in Egypt is analogous uh, to the royal family of, uh, let's say, Abu Dhabi, uh, in that it's sort of the, uh, the implementing arm, if you will, of the emir, or in the case of Egypt, of the president. Uh, and it draws upon the, the resources, uh, the rents from either hydrocarbons or, or in the, 
again, in both cases, land. Uh, so it's uh, a, a curious paradox then that you have uh, in Egypt a, an economy modeled on the Gulf economies, but which doesn't have the resource of them. Uh, and so the only thing that the, the CC can do is to try to rely on external levels of support, external rents in the form of public foreign assistance or the willingness of German, French, British, American, and other taxpayers to subsidize his consumption, whether of military or civilian goods. Um, and so uh, the end result of a, a rentier economy without rents means that it's either foreigners who are going to pay the bills or they're extracted from the populations themselves because the rents are insufficient. And so this is what President Sisi of Egypt is having to do, is extract surplus value uh, from his external relations and from his domestic population. And uh, both of these strategies are, of course, fraught with peril. Now, one point that you make um, in the book, uh, which was I, I found quite interesting, was that uh, when you look at the demographic structure of the region and uh, kind of the, the youth bulge, the young population, the, the, the percentage of the population, which is young, uh, you actually equate that to what was actually one of the big drivers of East Asian development. And then the question is, why has the Middle East not been able to um, exploit that uh, human resource in the way that East Asian states were? Well, and in a way, I'm not sure that the uh, the developmental state literature from East Asia got that one right. Uh, was it that uh, the great uh, East Asian miracle was due to having a young population at the time that the miracle began to unfold? Or was it due to state capacities, uh, which is what Chalmers Johnson argument originally was? And I think it, it was the World Bank. Uh, and the chief economist there who, who, you know, wrote the famous World Bank piece on the East Asian development state model uh, that really, in a sense, conflated that. Uh, because if you don't employ young people, uh, they are not an asset, just like uh, older people who are not employed or those who are still in uh, education are not, a, they are not in the labor force or not a productive asset. Uh, and so the... Um, uh, the youth bulge of the Middle East and North Africa, which is moving through the systems now, uh, and it's not going to be too long, another decade or so, and the age the distribution of Middle East and North African political economies uh, is going to uh, be much less favorable uh, to uh, uh, growth, if indeed growth depends heavily on high labor participation rates of those in, let's say, the 18 to 65 year categories. Uh, well, that hypothesis was never uh, uh, realized in the Middle East and North Africa. The, going back 10 years when the, the real uh, youth boulder began, uh, it's not as if productivity went up. It didn't. Uh, and so, I, you know, demographics are not determinative. Uh, they play a role in outcomes. But I think it was sort of overstated uh, in the East Asian case about its impact. And so much of the early writing in political economy of the Middle East, North Africa, was very optimistic on the grounds that this is a very young population and it's going to increase uh, productivity uh, as that age uh, bulge moves through, if you will, the snake of uh, the political economies of these countries. That didn't happen. Uh, and indeed, labor force participation rates in Middle East and North Africa are the lowest in the world. Uh, and they are the lowest in the world, not just because female employment is on average in the Middle East, North Africa, a, part, a labor force participation rate rather, is below 25%, but even male participation rates in the Middle East and North Africa, which are around 50%, uh, are well below the global average of uh, yeah, something like 65, 70%. So uh, demographics are important, uh, but you have to be careful about how you use them. Uh, and they are as much curse as blessing. Uh, they can be a blessing if you employ people and a curse if you don't. Uh, and that's sort of where we are now in the Middle East and North Africa. So the book doesn't offer um, a great deal of hope. Regrettably not. Uh, it, it's pretty hard to see. Uh, and the models that are being adopted at present, such as the one in Egypt that I was just mentioning, 
are dead ends in my mind, but so too. Uh, the most optimistic model you can come up with is the value added uh, to hydrocarbons. Uh, and Stefan Hertog uh, uh, and various other folks who have looked at this see the opportunities for taking Gulf economies uh, and intensifying, if you will, their dependence on hydrocarbons, but doing it in a way that has all sorts of local spin-off effects. Uh, and that model can be articulated sort of nicely, and it, it's partly explained in the vision statements of those countries, uh, but not by any means entirely and not by any means correctly in my mind. Uh, it's not as focused as some of the other works by political economists are. But excluding then the, the, the GCC states, which have an opportunity to do value-added processing of hydrocarbons and then get spin-offs in uh, service sectors, other production sectors, and so on, that option is not available uh, in most of the other countries of the region, even including Iraq and Algeria, which have very significant hydrocarbon deposits and exports. Uh, so for the rest of the, of, of the Middle East and North Africa, uh, even the hopes of a, what would be a fairly technically complicated model to adopt, but which theoretically is possible, is it politically possible is another question, but it's not even theoretically easy to see a development model that can work for a country like Egypt now with 102 million people. Uh, boy, one is really hard pressed to come up with something. So yes, Mark, I'm, I hate to confess it, but there's a lot of gloom and doom here. Well, on that uh, optimistic note, um, I'd like to thank uh, Bob Springborg uh, from Naval Post Graduate School uh, from joining us to talk about his book, Political Economies of the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Mark, for having me. A real pleasure.